0: And I said, he's my trouble, that's what you do. Right. Um, I've got the future for you right here. No worries anymore. All right. Because of our great society and our great scientists, we have transhumanism. Transhumanism. Uh, no, this this is forward. So you used to be the monkey. And then you're... I don't know what's going on there. Then you're kind of—he's on his phone, and then the other dude's got—I uh, don't know he, something like that. And then the other guy's bionic, I think. And then—and so this is where we're headed. So you might—you yeah—you might have to wait a little a little bit, Sue. Um, but you know, it's it's coming slowly. But um, this is the – I read about this today, and it fit just so perfectly that it's a philosophical and Ill- intellectual movement which advocates for the enhancement of the human condition by developing and making widely available sophisticated technologies. So, and our, our uh, good friend Elon Musk is actually doing this. Uh, um, he's got a company with the technology going on in which they're going to put chips or at least – try to put chip I, I mean I put chips in my body but they're diff- these are different. <laughs> <Me> too. <laughs> you too right but uh, yeah chips in your brain that are um, and using um, artificial intelligence because our natural intelligence is, is definitely not living up to things uh, that are, are going to greatly enhance our longevity, make us live long and our cognition. And so we're going to be encyclopedic in knowledge and live, I don't know, who who knows how long they can get us to live. And so I kind of liken it to, here's uh, my upgrade, is something like that. Right? Transhumanist thinkers study the potential benefits and dangers of emerging technologies that could overcome fundamental human limitations as well as the ethics of using such technologies. Uh, Some transhumanists believe that human beings may eventually be able to transform themselves into beings with abilities so greatly expanded from the current condition as to merit the label of post-human beings. Well, uh, fortunately for us, we've got the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, What is ironic about this is that it is man trying to create himself into a God. And that is a manifestation of the conscience that God has put in every single person. We're going to look at that today. Um, The reality is, is that the opposite happened. God became a man. And by becoming a man, he made us to be what God had always wanted us to be had planned and decreed for us to be which is far better than that nonsense far better and we'll see today we'll we'll look at this a little bit more there's something that these transhumanists completely overlook and they don't think it's a problem at all and it is actually the problem so let's uh we'll start in second Thessalonians chapter 2 Now, let's begin with prayer and uh, thank God for the opportunity to be before his word, to have the truth and know it is the truth. That's one of the great blessings of the truth is we don't have to search for it. We know exactly where it is. It is inspired by God and that it is um, his mind to us. And so with reverence and humility, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your time, our time, to be with you, to be able to slow down uh, from our lives and to just sit with you and learn from you. Your Holy Spirit is in us as our teacher. Your word is the mind of our Lord in type. And we, uh, we get to perceive that and see it from cover to cover. So much you have included let speak of this very thing that we're looking at today, which is the glory of your Son. May we more so see that glory, Father, as you would have it, and to your will that we see what you have done, who you are, and how you have manifested that through Christ and his work. So that we would be set free. So that we would be transformed. And that we would have liberty. The freedom to look into the glory of Christ Without any limitations. We ask, Father, that through your spirit our hearts would be so enlightened. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So sometimes and the reason for this transhumanist nonsense, I'll get gadget off of there, is uh, we kind of get run down. And I think even as believers, I know this. uh, The drabness, the boredom of our lives. uh, Sometimes it's boredom. Uh, we see around us uncleanliness, increasingly so homelessness. It's, it's um, depressing to drive by, a, say, a homeless camp and stuff like that. We see evil people. We look at the news. We see stupid policies. We wonder, oh, my God, this place is just terrible. And um, the whole mess, as we have seen, uh, apexes in the tribulation with the rulership of the Antichrist, that Paul brought up and is, is labeled in the scriptures the last days. And that's the last human kingdom. And it's a mess, absolute mess. And then it made me think of the Lord coming here. Imagine you're God in heaven. What a nice place. You know? And then you come here. You're limited in your flesh as a human being. And you're in a world, I mean, talk about drab compared to where you've come from. So today, uh, we look, at, as Paul leads us to, we, he leaves the eschatology of the day of the Lord that he started in verse 1 of this chapter, and he returns to the reality, the present reality of our salvation. And he returns to his thankfulness to the Thessalonians. Uh, the first, And this is the second time he thanks them. The first time he thanked them, he thanked them for their increase in faith and their increase in love. And this time he thanks them for being believers, which is really refreshing because therefore he's thankful for all of us. The election of salvation by our faith in the gospel, as God says here, as Paul says here, by the sanctification of the spirit, we are elected to salvation by our faith in the gospel. And that is the means that God has gracefully given us the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ for us to look into and look at it. We can Every day, as much as we like. So look at verse thirteen. But we should always give thanks to you, to God for you. That's important. That he gives thanks to God. He's not thanking them. I'm glad I made that mistake. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. I'm kind of skip that phrase, as I think we know it well enough. But that is that beloved uh, is is a word that is used of of our Lord, of the Father loving Him, and He loves us like He loves His Son. And that's, you know, something that you'll spend your life trying to wrap your mind around. And that God will lead you to understand how much He loves you. And I I don't think in this life we'll ever gain the full appreciation of it, which is a good thing. I mean, it's something to look forward to in heaven. I think it would explode our brains if we knew it. But brethren, beloved by the Lord, there's nowhere you can go, nothing you can do, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, that could break that love for you. Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. It's really faith of the truth, but faith in the truth is fine. Uh, we've got three different prepositions here. It's a tricky little sentence that um, you know could could uh, drive you a little nuts. But it's if you're trying to iron it out. But I, I think it, what the New American Standard has here is just fine. It speaks of our salvation um, and our election. We noted on Sunday that from the beginning is likely first fruits because it's the same word. But from the beginning is also fine because we know in Ephesians 1 that we've been elected before the foundation of the world. And so from the beginning is true, and also we are the first fruits, that that's also true. And, um, <clears throat> and we have here uh, Paul launching once again into the conundrum of election and faith, sovereign election of God before the foundation of the world, our faith in the gospel in time, which, of course, is our free will decision when we're presented with the gospel. And Paul, you know, he never tries to unravel it. Never, not once. And so uh, we're not to unravel it either. Though this is not my subject for today, but, you know, it comes up again. And if, you're, and if it makes you think, just know that there's uh, nowhere in the scripture that I have seen or anyone else has seen. Because if they had seen it, it would be solved. (laughs) But no one has. That God has sovereignly picked us before the foundation of the world. And God has also um, heeded our decision to believe in the gospel. And that is the means. He says here, uh, he called you through our gospel. And also at the end of verse 13, faith in the truth. And so it's our faith and the gospel that we believed in. That is the means of our sanctification, the means of our salvation, and therefore the means of our election, which is the word chosen. And uh, <clears throat> what we must not do, as Paul never does, is this is the Gordian knot. For If there's ever a Gordian knot, which is the knot, in that Greek myth of this incredible knot that no one could untie, and I it might have been Odysseus or somebody, just came up and cut it. Like, why are you trying to unravel this knot? And he cut it in half. It's like, wow, brilliant. But uh, we must never do that. So like a hyper-Calvinist cuts the knot, says it's all sovereignty. Arminianist cuts the knot and says it's all free will. And then, you know, here we are in the middle saying, well, it's both. It is both. And God's smart enough to know what he's doing, so I leave it in his hands. Um, But what we're after here today is that knowing that you are saved, and God makes that abundantly clear to every single believer. Um, I've never met a believer who doubted their salvation. And um, that is the fact that we are given, we obtain. That's what the word means. You have New American Standard says we gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that, what a gift. We saw last time Sunday that our salvation and our destiny are given simultaneously at our new birth. So when we're born again and saved, we're given eternal life. We're not earning it. Eternal life means we're given it. We're stated in Ephesians 6 as being seated with Christ together, seated together with Christ in heavenly places. We've all been raised with Christ, seated with him. Uh, The Bible talks about us being already resurrected in Romans 6. We died with him. We raised with him. We live with him. Uh, Christ said, I go to prepare a place for you. That sounds future, right? I go to prepare a place for you, John 14, 2. But then in John 14, 23, he says, I am my father. Build our house with you here in time. If you love me and you obey me, we build our house with you now. So there's a already, not yet, now on earth, also in heaven, and like no other birth, the born-again believer in this age is given everything at birth. Hence, we're heirs. You know, That's another thing that makes uh, our inheritance is given to us at the moment of salvation. We're not waiting. Like the death that was required for the inheritance already happened. So Christ died and we received the inheritance. That's also Romans chapter 8. So, um one of the things that we're given is this glory and the glory of Christ. We'll see uh, more of this a bit tomorrow. But, you know, leading up to it, that uh, when we see Christ come again at his coming, we will see his glory. And in fact, it says in First uh, Thessalonians that that glory, uh, we will glorify him when we see him. In Colossians 3, when he's revealed in glory, we're revealed in glory with him. So he's glorified. We're glorified with him. We see the glory. And that all happens at the second coming uh, or the rapture. You know, both, both would hold to that. But there's certainly an aspect of this that is in time, meaning, and the main passage we'll look at today for this, is that we're beholding his glory now, and it's so clear that it's like looking in a mirror. Now, looking in a mirror, you know, in the ancient world, we have mirrors everywhere now, but then they're pretty rare things and expensive things. I mean, uh, I think it was Louis the Fourteenth was got famous for his hall of mirrors in his palace. What was that Versailles? I think it was. I mean, it costs a lot of money to put all those mirrors in there. Right. today it' cost you maybe a few hundred bucks from Amazon to put those mirrors in. but uh, then it was everything it was famous throughout the world. And so my point is is that the the image of the mirror in in our passage that we'll see is about true clearly seeing, and not so much about seeing yourself, although that's in there. That's a part of it. But it is seeing our Lord in his glory. And when you see that, there are certain tendencies in you. And some you're going to have to learn to accept, and some you're going to have to learn to fight, and some you're going to have to learn to desire. And all of that is going to happen as you continue to look in this mirror, which is the glory of the Lord Jesus. Seeing the glory of God in Christ has to be the ultimate experience in life. You know, after all that Moses had been through, what the one thing he asked God of God when he was with him on the mountain he said, "Can I see Your glory?" And God said, "No, you can't." So by definition, glory has several nuances. The word is doxa in the Greek. Um, it means the condition of being bright. That's why it's often associated with light. It can be a state of being that is magnificent or great. And it can be the honor that is bestowed on someone who is magnificent and great. Someone who is recognized for their status, their performance, their fame, their renown, and they're they're looked at with glory. So it can refer to the honor. And that applies to us in that we do glorify him or we praise his glory. That's a phrase that is used a few times in the New Testament, that we praise his glory. And... um, the condition of being bright is manifested in several ways. It, it can be like an angel. It uh, could be a star. Uh, in the early mornings now, obviously it's still dark out, so it's pretty early. But if you're up before the sun, look east. Venus, the, or, the morning star, is incredibly bright right now. It's due east. And, uh, you know, that, it's the brightest thing in the sky above all others. And that's doxa, which is why Christ gets that title, Morning Star. Um, and for us, here in our context, it is to gain the glory of Jesus Christ is to see and praise the person of Christ. And, I mean, that's basically it. But we have to understand what person means. Person for him means a lot more than we generally think about it in the people, uh, for the people in our own lives. Uh, it is the who, what, and why of him, everything. But of course, everything that's revealed, we we don't know when, from the scripture, and with our limited ability, that we we don't know absolutely everything about him, and that's fine. But what we do know, what is revealed, would take us forever to learn, and uh, and you know we're learning more and more about it. It's an endless, bottomless, or as Paul says, unfathomable search for the glory of Christ. And to see it. And and that's what's here. You get to see it. I get to see it. And he is everything. The embodiment of God in a man. Uh, Everything that God desired mankind to be. That's why this never gets boring. That's why it it never becomes uh, religious for us. Because what we're, when we're looking at him, we're looking at that which deals with everything that we want, we desire, we are. That is of every aspect, every emotion, every, everything that we would occupy ourselves with that is good are all in him. Because he's the one. Human being. So it's so important to understand that he's a human being. One of the first attacks against against Christianity in the beginning was that Jesus did not come in the flesh, that he wasn't a real human. Um, and so he is my human, your human, but not just human. He's God, who uh, emptied himself of the expression of his deity so that. And we'll see more of this tomorrow in Second Peter or is it First Peter? It was one of the Peters? <laughs> In chapter 1, verse 11, that he had to suffer to give us this sight. To open our eyes, he had to suffer. So in our context, it is the glory of Christ that every believer can gain. This is a noun. It's not a verb. It reads like a verb. If you look at it with me again, it was, For this he called you, or elected you, through our gospel, that you may gain. Right? That sounds like a verb, but it's not. There's no verb there. It's so that in, or that in obtaining or for obtaining or by obtaining, this obtaining is a thing. It's a noun. You hold it. And that what you hold and what you can look into is the glory of Christ. And, that, and that's for everybody, right? So your background, your education, what people thought of you, uh how much you were put down, your own lack of self-esteem, your own bad self- image uh or good if it's too good, you know uh but I think for most of us it's it's too much bad self- image, and all of that you know all of that, everything that we are, everything that everybody said that we were, uh what our family said we were, who all the people in our lives that said you never lived up, you weren't enough, you were a loser. You're unworthy, blah, blah, blah. To every one of us who are believers, God gave the glory of his son and said, look into this. And by the way, it's not something, and you're not looking into someone. It's a a person, obviously, but you're not looking into someone that is far distant from you. You're looking into someone with whom you are in union. No one is as close to you as he is. That one human being in all of your life and any experience here on earth is as close to you as Jesus Christ is. And that's the one you're looking into. So when you're incredibly amazed by him and you say, I'm not good enough, he's in you and you're in him. And that will never be separated. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. <clears throat> so we receive eternal life at Salvation. In Galatians 6, we're commanded to grab hold of it now, right? So eternal life makes us all think of future. But then Paul says to grab hold of it now, and we say, well, we already have it. Why am I grabbing hold of it? And what Paul, what this word to grab hold of means is to, to know, to understand, to live in. Jesus, in his prayer in John 17, said that eternal life was knowing the Father. That's how he defined it. Okay tweak your head at that a bit and say, well, uh, eternal life more sounds more to me like a duration of time. It's like forever in heaven, which it is, but it's also obviously a quality of life if it's knowing the Father. And you can't know the Father unless you believe in the Son, and you can't know the Father unless, believing in the Son, you see the Son. You have to walk with the Son and... Jesus Christ said, I give you the Holy Spirit so that you can know the things about me, and the things about me are the things about the Father. So without your relationship with the entire Trinity, you can't really know the Father. And therefore, you won't know anything about eternal life. And and truly, it's a huge issue with Christianity, especially in in the West where Christianity has become more of a country club. That people just don't know the Word of God. And because they're not looking into the Word of God, they're not looking into the mirror. Because they're not looking into the mirror, they're not seeing the glory of Christ. Because they're not seeing the glory of Christ, they don't see the glory of the Father. And they don't know who they are. And they think Christianity is, you know, being happy and nice and Jesus loves me. Which all of those things are true. It's just not enough. It's not near enough. Seeing the glory of God in Christ is the ultimate experience of life. So, now, we often find ourselves, uh, well, we're, we're witnesses to the world. And whether you know it or not, you're a Christian. If you act like a horse's butt, you're witnessing. Um, if you act awesome, you're witnessing let's we we're shooting for the latter one there, of course, but um we we have this tendency where we look at others and their hearts don't get it, they don't see it, that we have a tendency to put them down and say, well, you know if you only knew and and, and it's true if if they knew it'd be better, uh, things would be much better, but that they um it, it, on our part it, there's a tendency to put down to judge, to condemn. And what we should understand, and this is a great help to us, but first and foremost, agape love or God's divine love seeks for the benefit and the betterment of others, and it doesn't matter who they are. As Christ told us, love your enemies, right? So whoever they are, we seek for them to see the glory of Christ. And there's a there's a great... Um, how shall I say, normalizer to all of this because it's not based on works, right? So if it's not based on works, then when you see a lack of knowledge and understanding or a great amount of evil or sin in a person's life, they can be snapped out of that in a moment because something just has to dawn on them, that which they have to understand and see. They're not having to climb up a mountain to undo all the evil that they've done. They just need to see. And as, you know, the, one of the, I've seen this uh, just recently in the opening of the Psalms. The book of Psalms, the first two Psalms are an intro to the entire Psalter. And that first Psalm is a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And the righteous just behold the Lord's law, the wicked don't. And that's it. There's nothing there about the history of the wicked or the history of the righteous or where they came from or what they did. It's what they saw. And then you look at the rest of the Psalms are just like that. So in every person, all we're fallen creatures, but all of us are made in the image of God. We still are. That's in Genesis 9. After the fall, God said to Noah, he made a covenant with Noah and said that all of you are in my image. So, (coughs) we have in people, in every one of us, a desire to be right. Yeah? A desire to be just. And God has hardwired it into every person. Generally, the go-to verse for this is in Ecclesiastes 3 where Solomon writes that God put eternity in every man's heart. We see it in experience, and we see it also in other scripture that we'll um, continue to see here, uh, that <clears throat> hardwired into every person is the desire, the desire for moral goodness, for justice. Now, I'm not saying that there's good in everybody. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there's a desire for it. There's a desire, there is a desire for people to be right, Mixed with pride, it turns into a horrible thing. But they desire to be right. They desire to be the right one. Or at least they desire to be considered as right. You know, I won the argument, I'm the right one. But they have this idea of right and wrong. What they ought to do, what they ought not to do. Whether they do it or not is a different issue. <coughs> and so every person desires a moral goodness. There's a moral Factor in every soul. Uh, in C.S. Lewis's book *The Abolition of Man*, it's awesome. It's a little book. It's an awesome book. And he talks about the nature of mankind. And there's an appendix at the end of it. And he lists—I I forget how many cultures he lists—but there are various cultures from various times all over the earth. And he lists the consistencies in their moral code. And they have different religions different times, different cultures. But not one of them elevates a coward. Not one of them says stealing is good. Not one of them says murder is good. Not one of them says stealing another person and making them a slave is good. They do it. But their code says otherwise. And that's throughout the spectrum. And what does that tell us? That God is hardwired. Every person with a conscience. And every person wants to be right. Hence, transhumanism. I mean, these people, they have plenty of money. They, why does a God, people who have obtained the heights of technological prowess, why do they want to make better human beings? Because they think it's right. They think it's good. Now, the problem is, is that they're seeking good in the wrong place. And that's the big, huge problem. What transhumanism neglects, and they don't even think about it, is the sin issue. If we could graft into ourselves computer chips, artificial intelligence, so that we're encyclopedic in knowledge... Bionic limbs, that would be pretty cool, especially as we're getting older. And by them, we could live for hundreds of years. I don't know, maybe thousands. Okay, we could solve it. <laughs> Deb's like, I don't want to be here that long. I agree, I agree. Um, you know, what about the moral issue? Technology doesn't even touch it. Technology is a bunch of ones and zeros and electrons and stuff flying around. It has no care for moral issues. It cannot even identify sin. Never mind deal with it. And so how could we have a utopia or something like that while well, there's still sin? And you see, God, when God becomes a man, that's his first order of business. Before he resurrects us, before he gives us new bodies, call them bionic if you will, uh, before he gives us new brains, which would be pretty encyclopedic I would imagine, before he gives us heaven, he deals with the first, first things first. And that is the cross. He has to deal with sin. So when a person rejects the only source of glory, he's bypassing. Uh, the the first major hurdle. Instead of jumping over it, or I should say, having Jesus throw him over it, uh, <laughs> he's trying to walk around it, and that's impossible because that barrier between you and God is infinity in every direction. Keep walking, you're never going to get to the end of it. Is no solution. So. As we saw in several passages here, these are just a sampling. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image, Romans 1.23, seeking glory elsewhere. And here was, we saw this passage last week, um, meaning they, they had the knowledge of God that God gave them, right? This is another a great passage in Romans 1 for telling us also that God has given a conscience to mankind. And that they have the knowledge of God through his creation, but they exchanged it. Exchange it means that they handed it in for something else, which was an idol. Uh, in John 5:44, Jesus said to the to the religious leaders, "You receive glory from one another. And that's where you're seeking it." You know, Abe over there says that I'm a really good guy. That's good enough for me. Yeah, they all, everybody here in the Sanhedrin looks up to me, or in the synagogue, they look up to me. That's good enough. And then in John 7, 18, actually speaking to his brothers. And it makes me wonder if James was in this group. They're not They're not said for sure who was there. But in John 7, his brothers say to Jesus, hey, why don't you go to the feast? It was the Feast, uh, um, um, feast of Lights. And uh, they said, hey, Jesus, why don't you go down to the feast and tell them all who you really are, that you're the Son of God. His brothers knew <laughs> that... They were seeking to kill By that point in his ministry, they were seeking to kill him. And they said, why don't you go? Jesus said to them, you seek your own glory. But Jesus said, I don't seek my own glory. Isn't that amazing? This is the Son of God. He said, I never sought for my own glory. He left it in the hands of the Father. He said, Father, glorify your Son. You do it. I'm not going to do it. He said, I glorify the Father. In John 12, he says, Father, glorify your name. And then God speaks from heaven and says, I will glorify it. I have glorified it, and I'll glorify it again. Father, glorify your Son. Right? You see, when you're looking into the glory of Christ, he's showing you how to think, how to even think about yourself, how to think about others, and what is the right and only way. And when your conscience that God has given you now is plugged into that which is right, you find peace and confidence. And that's why when your enemy or the person who doesn't believe or doesn't know near as much as you do about the Lord, you don't judge them and put them in their place. What you're concerned about is that they come over to your side, to come over to the Lord and see. All I want for you is to see. And hence from this comes love. Because you're looking at Him. You're looking into His glory. Now when we say looking into His glory, you're looking at doctrines. You're looking at scripture. You're looking at psalms. You're looking at prophecies. You're looking at letters in the New Testament. So many various means by which God in different types of literature conveyed to us the image of His Son. This was given to us as a gift. So glory is the nature and acts of God. That's a very oversimplified definition, but it is the person of God. is who he is and what he does. Looking into him changes you. But, of course, you cannot see the glory of Christ unless you are born again and spirit-filled. Go to John seventeen twenty four. Just two passages today. John seventeen twenty four. This was Jesus's desire, and that's why I, I, the the next book we're doing after this is Matthew. Um, because I want to look at the Lord for a few months. I hope it's only a few months. but well, who knows it's a big gospel, but um, I just want to look at Him like right up to Christmas maybe and just see Him for months because we've been talking a lot about us and we've I've had it up to here with me. I want to look at <laughs> really uh, like uh, uh, we'll get back to that. Actually, in the Gospels, we'll see it over and over again. But, you know, when, you, when you're when you looking at his his character, his attributes, in and, and all four Gospels, if you overlay them and do that like harmony of the Gospel thing, you get about, someone estimated told me uh, once that it's about 65 days. It's under 100 days of his life out of 33 years, roughly. That's it. That's all we got. John says at the end of his gospel, if we wrote everything down, there wouldn't be enough paper to hold it. So, um, yeah, really limited. And we, so we said, so well, where's the rest of it? And God says, look, this is what you need to know. You don't need to know anything else. Just this. This is what you need to know. And i put it together by my spirit in a way that is going to convey to you. That's why the gospels don't overlap perfectly. Because God's going to say, I'm giving to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John four different things. They're not entirely different, obviously. The first three are very, very similar. But also not similar in many ways. And God saying, I'm giving this to you in a way that's going to reveal my son to you. So don't alter them. What people do. There's a big movement now. now. I learn about it now because I'm taking a course on this. You know the stuff you don't learn at church, which is what all the naughty people are doing. When I say naughty. I don't. I mean like the liberal. So here's the idea that the gospels are not historical. In other words, this is it's huge. It's all over the place, and so many pastors are trained in seminaries and universities with that thought that they're not the miracles aren't truly real, and they're not historical. It's just. You know, a means by which God has conveyed certain manner of living, certain moral living, a certain goodness. But, you know, you can't take it literal. And a lot of people believe that. And then they get jobs at churches and they teach their churches that. And it takes all the authority out of them. Uh, and uh, and hence, you know, it's just in another attack by the kingdom of darkness. Um, <clears throat> when we look into the Gospels, we're able to see his characteristics. It's aspects of the Gospels that, you know, they're going to speak to you. What Jesus said, what he did, where he went and how he went is is going to speak to you in particular ways that, you know, make the, the doctrines, the other doctrines that we learn come alive. That's why it's so it's so vital to know the gospels some i remember being taught that they were interim books you know they're between the dispensations so you know you really can't take them all that seriously there's no and i, I was told there's no real doctrine in them yeah right that's a lie look at john 7 17 24 Jesus' prayer father i desire that they also whom you have given me Be with me where I am. Where is he? Uh, And so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. Right? I don't seek my own glory, he said. Father, glorify your son. The father did. This is the glory you've given me. Now show it to them. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. And now you love them. And I love them. right, so, you know, what greater thing is there to see? We live in a world that's very distracted with a lot of things. And there's not enough time being spent looking. Where you're going to see him is not that picture you may have of him or any picture of him. But I mean like in the scripture where you're going to see him. In Proverbs and Psalms and prophecies. I mean, it's extensive. You don't have to sit down and read the whole thing at once. Just take a little snippet here and there and read them. So this becomes the fulfillment of the internal desire that God has placed in every person. So here's this conscience, which we really want to know good and evil, but we're so confused and seeking for it in all the wrong places. And now here, Jesus, by the fulfillment of his prayer, now our conscience is made correct. And this settles us down and gives us peace. So look at Second Corinthians three. So our whole desire is fulfilled here. Everything we've been looking for. And he fulfills it in way more than we're bargained for it, right? I has not seen. We imagine what it might be, and then God shows us Christ. And we're like, wow, that I did not expect. We think we know. We think we know what this may be about. And then he shows us more. And not entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. We're amazed. And we don't have to wait for heaven for this. I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure there's a whole lot more clarification coming when we are in heaven, but there's a whole lot more clarification coming for us now in time. Now, it helps us to see the overabundance of blessing that we see in Christ by comparing it, and that's what Paul does here, by comparing it to the glory that they could see in the Old Testament. The revelation of God was made through the law. Right, so this huge, huge revelation is the first time the nation of Israel actually see God on Mount Sinai. Well, they see the flame and the cloud and the thunder and all that, but they hear his voice. He speaks the Ten Commandments from the mountain and they hear this. And so that's glory. It's the glory of manifestation of the character, the nature, and the law of God. And so he says this in 2 Corinthians 3.7, but if the ministry of death that's a, such a title for the law. <laughs> you know, that's God's title for his own law. Because by the law shall no man be justified. So if you're not justified, you will end up dead forever or judged. So if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones, and you know, when it was engraved on stones, who engraved it? The finger of God. He didn't say, Moses, write this down. Now, for the whole lot of the law, we assume that he did. But when it came to the Ten Commandments on the tablets, which is what he's referring to here, it was God's finger. This is my law. And he calls it a ministry of death, of all things. In letters engraved on stones, it came with glory so that the sons of Israel cannot look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? Now to unravel this, of course, we have to know what is happening. We see it in Exodus. That when Moses left the mountain, his face was beaming with the glory of God. So this would be an application of the glory being pure light. And uh, I always think of this, the Ten Commandments. You know, Charlton Heston leaves the scene and he's all kind of ragged looking dirty sheep herder and then he comes back and he's got highlights and he's tanned and he looks Hollywood awesome, you know. But this was something different. So that Moses put a veil on his face because the people would be amazed at this glory emanating from Moses and they'd be all rejoicing about it, I'm sure. And then they turn around to do something and go look at Moses again, and he looks the same. He looked normal. Well, where'd the glory go? They probably wanted Moses to run back up the mountain and get recharged. <laughs> plug back in. But what does that mean? The glory, was it there? Yeah. But it fades. And there's a beautiful application of this, because when you're looking at that glory and then it fades... You long for the real. Where's the real glory that stays, and it makes you long for it. However, we should see this in context. The context is Paul's great struggle. You start reading in chapter one, um, and and you know uh, I would this. I'm going to make a plug here for reading your Bible. I know we're all busy. But I don't I don't care. I'm going to you know, you should do it anyway. And please don't buy the lie that the pastor has to interpret everything for me. The um, the letters, the letters, uh, we want to sit down and read Isaiah all the way through. You'll probably fall asleep or get a headache or both. Uh, You know, it's huge. Um, And so I would say take that in pieces. But letters were written to be read entirely, in one sitting. You know, if someone wrote you a letter, and you, I mean, I can understand if it was a big letter. Maybe you read one or two pages. But this is a letter from God to you. You say, God, I read page three, and then I read page one, and then I read page 12, and I don't get it. What were you trying to say? Well, no kidding. The letters were meant to be read all at once. Fortunately, we have letters like Ephesians, you know, or... Colossians, Colossians four chapters. Even Philemon, you could read that one. <laughs> Real short. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I would just encourage you to do that. Maybe a, a big letter like Colossians or Romans, you know, maybe in two, two or three sittings. But when we're plucking out verses here and there, we're missing uh, a great deal of the context. The context here, if you start in chapter 1, is Paul's great struggle in his ministry. By this point in Paul's ministry, he's been pestered, to put it lightly, he's been attacked, he's been maligned, he has suffered hardship, he's gone day and nights without shelter in the cold, without food, without water, he's been stranded at sea, he's suffered physically and mentally. He suffered privation, and he's been rejected. He's been maligned and attacked even by those in Corinth. However, it wasn't all suffering because there's a great amount of success as well. But what he mentions is his struggle. And Paul, however, understood that his whole ministry was not about him. And what we say, well, of course not, Paul. But it's also not about his success as a missionary. It's not about that. Because if it were about that, well, you know, after this beautiful uh, part in Acts where after he leaves Athens, he just bombs in Athens. And when he leaves Athens, he comes to Corinth, this huge metropolitan city. And he's just like, good Lord. And God has to appear to him and encourages him. He says, Paul, I've got many here who are with me. Don't be scared. He was. This is not about you, Paul. It's not even about your ministry. It's about the Lord's ministry. It's not about your success, Paul. It's about the one who already had success on behalf of us all. And the same one we're witnessing. If they get, if our ministry is whatever God has given us, if they... They work out or it seems to us that they're working out. It's not the point. The point is that you and I get to behold the glory of the Lord. And then, as we'll see tomorrow, we get to praise the glory of the Lord, which is a natural, it will be a result. There's no way you can see him and not praise him. If you don't praise him, you haven't seen him. And then the witness of that glory. And we'll see that God doesn't even just say, all right, now I showed you my glory. Now go get him. He goes with us. And he comforts us because we're going to need that. He strengthens us because we're going to need that in real time as we're now reflecting the mirror and now we become that mirror to the world of the glory of Christ. So notice what he says in verse 4. This is not about him, right? Notice verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Our confidence, again, is not in ourselves. Such confidence, verse 4, we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter, speaking of the Mosaic law, kills, it's the law of death, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could look intently at the face of Moses because the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, the law, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. It's overwhelmed by the glory of Christ. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that that which remains is in glory. Uh, Can you find the word that Paul is emphasizing here? This is what they teach us in hermeneutics. Find that word. This is a nice easy one. uh, Therefore, having such a hope... We use great boldness in our speech. So we're back to verse 4. Where does this confidence come from? It's not about the success, success of my ministry, Paul says. It is about this one. About the Lord. About His truth. About His glory. Having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Paul is saying here, I'm offering something permanent, not something that's fading. That's what he means there. I am giving you something that will never fade. Hence, I speak with boldness. They may whip me and beat me and reject me and mock me and make trouble for me, but what I'm offering is still the same. It has not been tarnished because I've been tarnished. Or that my ministry seems to be failing But this isn't failing. And it never will. The law faded. Not this. So he said, verse 14, But their minds were hardened, for until this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ, seeking salvation in the law. It's never going to happen. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord... Bam. So back in our passage, elected, saved by the sanctification of the Spirit through faith of truth, through our gospel, so that you attain or obtain the glory of Christ. Now the veil's removed. So you can see him. You can see this glory. <clears throat> well, with the veil taken away, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Freedom. What is this freedom? But we all with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. I mean, so not only am I able to look at it, but it's actually changing me. But changing me into what? A really nice guy? (laughs) A, A transhuman? No, that's, was that right? That's transhumanism. That kind of has a, a crossover with the other thing people are into now. It's changing their genders. Uh, anyway, being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, and it comes by the Lord, the Spirit, the Spirit of God. Incredible. So when we look at looking at the Mosaic Law, as he said, it fades, and it makes us desire that which is permanent, that which is real, and that is the Lord. The Torah revealed God in a way, but it left the believer wanting more. And it's in First Peter chapter one, verse ten. the The prophets longed to see when the Lord would come, when the Messiah would come, and and he uses the word glory there too that the glory that would come from his sufferings. It says that the prophet searched and searched to know when and the manner of which he would come. And so we see the word liberty here. And liberty is the freedom to look at the glory of the Lord. And this picture was perfect. Right? if you're listening, it's a pawn looking in the mirror at a king. And um, yeah... That's what happens. And as you grow, he's not going to diminish. What's, ha- what's being offered here is not um, some kind of conservation of mass. We looked at that on Sunday when we looked at a bit of chemistry. Right, so under conservation of mass, if the pawn increases, the king's got to decrease. But that doesn't happen here because God works miracles. And that's what this is. This is a miracle. You and I get to... We have the liberty. Now, liberty means you can do this. Who can stop you? Nobody. Tyrants can't stop it. But in every, whenever there's tyranny, if some tyrant takes over a country, they always try to squash uh, Christianity. That's always the case because Christians are free. They already have a king. Now we'll see. Now, when you look in this mirror, we'll see. You know, first off, there's what do you see? So we will get into that a little bit tomorrow, and what are the results of what you see? This is spelled out in the scripture. What are you looking at? We're, we can get into some specifics now. You're looking at the glory of the Lord. Well, what are you actually looking at? And it's wonderful to look at the specifics. Say, take, take something like strength. That's in that mirror. Comfort. Wisdom. All the the stuff that we need to function well. It's there. It's in that mirror. We just need to look at it. And when we look at it, we see it for what it is. It transforms us. But we're also going to see ourselves in this mirror. So this picture is not perfect. No analogy is. Because there should be a reflection of another pawn in there. Because you're going to see everything that's wrong with you. Not not all at once, thank God. (laughs) He'd break us. Over the years, you're going to look in this mirror of the Word of God and go, huh, I didn't see that before. And that's because God in His love of you didn't want to pile it all on at once. And then He's going to tell you, "All right, it's time to deal with this. So, like, as I... You know, as... Um, as a man <laughs> I love when I start analogies and then they fall apart before I start them I always keep going though uh but uh, to to my demise often but uh yeah hair is growing less on my head and more in other places so it's const- there's a conservation of mass as it falls out of your head it's growing out of your nose or your eyebrows or your ears and if I look in the mirror and I see that, I could say, well, I could clip those nose hairs or just be like my dad, Mike Chagru, and go out with them. And we'd be like, Dad, he looks like a wildebeest, you know. Uh, my dad, when he was in his coffin, was the first time any of us ever saw him with trimmed eyebrows. He had huge, bushy eyebrows. This old, big, old Irishman with these huge, bushy eyebrows. Kept the rain off his face. And... Um, And then they were trimmed when he was lying in his coffin. And we were like, wow, that's the best he's looked. The best he's looked in in ages. You're going to see you. And so, you know who talks about this, seeing you in the mirror of the glory of God, is James. In James chapter 1, he says you look in the mirror, and then you walk away, and you forget what you saw. And sometimes this mirror is going to make us want to look away. Because it's going to show you what's wrong with you. And God's going to say, no, 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 no. Come back, come back, come back, come back. Because I forgive you. I love you. Let me comfort you. Let me change you. Let me strengthen the things that I have already built in you. And let me change the things that we need to change. And know that I forgive you completely. So don't run away. Be with me. This is the world that's been opened up to us through salvation in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that as our, your servant David said, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and a steadfast spirit within me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. If any of us need to be restored, know that we're forgiven, Father. Tell them that they're forgiven. Show it to them. Show it to all of us that we can, in the position that you have given us through the sacrifice of our Lord and His completed work on the cross for the judgment of all of our sins, that we can look upon Him. Therefore, see you and look intently So that we will be changed and that we will have joy and praise you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.